Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be considered as a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Adam Childers, here with the podcast known as Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. Well, loyal listeners, I'm excited to be back in the studio here in the Crow's Nest as we continue to gather every couple of weeks and learn something new in the wonderful area of the law. And this week, I'm really excited because I am being joined by a couple of folks that are members of our Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Practice Group. One of them is a returning guest, Don Shandy. The next is a newbie to the show, but uh, excited to be here. And that's Alyssa Gillette. Don, Alyssa, say hello to our listeners. This is Don. Glad to be with you and for being a returning guest. You bet. And this is Alyssa, and I'm excited to be here for the first time. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to have you guys here because we're going to be talking about an area that obviously impacts on the practice group that you guys uh, work in. Uh, We're going to be focusing on a United States Supreme Court that's currently pending. Uh, That's West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. But just as importantly as the case itself, we're going to be talking about the major implications that come with this case and the impact that for future generations it may have on federal agencies, which make it really Really crucially important, not just for legal practitioners like yourselves, but, you know, really for the clients that we serve that, you know, want to have an idea of what agencies are going to be able to do and what they cannot do. And this is going to be one of those seminal cases, I think, that help us understand that. So I'm happy that both of you are here to help me kind of work our way through this case. And to give you an idea of why this duo is perfect for the topic that we have today, I wanted to give you just a little bit of background about both. We'll start with Don. Don, you may remember some of this from uh, Don's previous experience here on the show, talking about uh, forever chemicals, but uh, his legal practice has been focused on the environmental and energy areas, having served as deputy general counsel for a multinational chemical company. And when he's not representing clients in environmental litigation and regulatory matters, he serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Importantly to our discussion today, he really has extensive experience in dealing with agencies, including the EPA, especially when it comes to the rulemaking process, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, And he's joined by a really valuable member of that same practice group, and that's Alyssa Gillette. Alyssa is a third-year associate here at the firm. We were really proud that when she joined us uh, from Oklahoma City University School of Law, that she was able to say, that she graduated as number one in her class. Not many get to say that. And that's a, a wonderful feather in the cap. And that's the hat with a whole bunch of feathers in it because, of course, she was outstanding law student as awarded by both the School of Law as well as the Oklahoma Bar Association uh, upon graduation. And uh, you know you have to be a smart cookie if you're going to be a clerk for the Supreme Court of, of any stripe and our Oklahoma Supreme Court and uh, specifically Justice Combs enjoyed her work as a clerk. 
which all of which means that this is a wonderful addition to our firm and a great member of the Pactus group that Don helps with, you know, on a daily basis. So excited that both of you are here. And this could be a, a somewhat esoteric conversation, but one that's really meaningful when it comes to the future of federal agencies. And, and I couldn't get through it uh, for sure without getting this case dissected by the two of you. And I, and I want to start with you, Alyssa, because I know that you had recently written about this case uh, for the journal record as part of the gavel to gavel column. And that's what caught our eye and thought, well, let's have a more expansive discussion about this case. I've I've been thinking about federal agencies a lot as a labor and employment attorney because I've been watching as uh, OSHA uh, sort of uh, got a little bit of a comeuppance from the United States Supreme Court as it related to some of the vaccine mandates. But that those issues didn't turn on this major questions doctrine that I think we're going to be talking about today. So let me turn the reins over to you and set the stage for us. I know that this case kind of begins back or at least finds its beginnings in an Obama era rule. But here we are, uh, you know, a couple of presidents later and it's still uh, a live issue. So, so tell us what that case is really about. Sure. You're right, Adam. This case has a very interesting procedural background in that it started in 2015 with the EPA under the Obama administration uh, promulgating the Clean Power Plan or the CPP. When that plan came out, it was immediately hit with a bunch of backlash by industry and it was challenged in multiple courts. The Supreme Court of the United States actually put a stay on the case and then held it in abeyance because the EPA took the rule back and wanted to further investigate investigate its own rulemaking powers. So, so what was the rule that, that was drawing the criticism? What, is, what exactly were they trying to get done? So the CPP had what we call generation shifting measures in it. And basically that is where the agency is allowing higher emitting emissions facilities to try to meet their emission goals by subsidizing or encouraging lower emissions from other facilities. And these are all termed outside the fence line measures. And so a lot of industry was upset because they didn't believe that EPA had the power to force under the Clean Air Act a facility to do anything outside of its one specific facility. So that's what set up the fight to begin with. And this this is back in 2015? Correct. Okay. So then if you advance forward in 2019, the Trump administration's EPA issued the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, or ACE. ACE repealed the CPP, and it all also put forth its new plan. And this plan did not have any of these outside the fence line measures or generation shifting requirements within it. But when the D.C. Circuit was hearing the ACE rule, it actually said that EPA, you were incorrect to decide that you did not have the power to implement the CPP and these generation shifting measures. And that's really the issue that we're focusing now at the Supreme Court level is whether or not the EPA actually had the power to make these outside the fence line requirements within its Clean Air Act rules. So that's interesting. And it was repealed and and the actual fight that kind of started everything was somewhat mooted, but we're still back to that fundamental issue, you know, could they decide that in the first instance? And so that turns, I guess, then on a lot of doctrine that we've heard through the years on on how far an agency can go. But I, I understand that the major questions doctrine is the one that's really popping up now as, you know, the lever that a lot of these arguments are based on. 
Right. And the major questions doctrine basically says that Congress cannot delegate authority to an agency to make major economic and politically significant decisions unless Congress explicitly says so in the legislation. And so the question really is, one, was the action that EPA took here within the purview of the major questions doctrine? And then two, if it was, does the legislation here actually grant that power to the EPA to make those decisions? Wow. So that could have a a dramatic impact, I would think, then on agencies' power to to do anything. I mean, not all of them are as explicitly laid out as perhaps they've acted over the years. And I think we've seen kind of this move. This is an outsider's view, I suppose, but it seems like because Congress can't always get its act together, sometimes we turn to, presidents turn to their agencies to try to force through what otherwise they cannot get done through legislation. So this would sort of neuter that ability, you know, from the executive branch to do that. Is that is that a fair read? It is. And that is what a lot of people analyzing this case are really centered and keyed in on is the impact that this would have not only on the EPA and any sort of climate change policy, but also administrative power in general and statutory interpretation. So the case has been heard at this point? Oral argument was held at the end of February, and it is expected that the court will issue some sort of opinion this summer. What's your feeling in terms of, uh, you know, we've got what largely is believed to be, you know, a a conservative majority on the bench. I always remind people that doesn't mean they're going to vote the way you think that they're going to vote. But do you have a sense as to which side, you know, justices might be leaning and what what the outcome could be, uh, you know, based on reading those tea leaves? Nobody has really said for sure that there is a strong leaning one way or the other. Interestingly enough, a lot of commentaries are looking at the fact that there are some standing issues here, just based on the fact that EPA is not currently trying to promulgate a rule with these generation shifting or outside the fence line measures. And so a lot of commentators are wondering if the Supreme Court will choose to actually bystep all of these major issues and just say that here the issue is moot, it's not ripe, and we're not going to make a decision. Uh, The old uh, sidestep that might uh, keep the issue for another day. Well, Don, having heard kind of that setup and where we're at, let's talk about what some of the doctrines are out there that, you know, pre-existed and, and the effect it could have. And, and the one that, you know, I, I remember from my constitutional law days, you know, the Chevron case comes immediately to mind. Kind of talk us through the implications that you see in terms of what those doctrines will be and, and what the precedent might turn out from this case. You bet, Adam. And, and you're exactly correct. In 1984, the Supreme Court uh, handed down a ruling, uh, as you mentioned, the Chevron case, which ironically was also a Clean Air Act case. Right back to the same place. Uh, Back to where we started, right? And in in that particular case, the issue that was in front of the court really revolved around EPA's interpretation of a stationary source. And what does that mean? And it had big implications on, on air quality permitting. Essentially, where the court came out was it said... At that time, unless the statute is clear that EPA overstepped their bounds, they had limited authority, then there was an analysis that they would undertake looking at, did the action the agency took, was it within their discretionary authority? And so back in 1984, even though the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, had decided EPA overstepped its authority, the Supreme Court decided that was incorrect. 
and indicated that EPA actually made a decision within their discretionary authority and overturned the Court of Appeals decision. So since that time, the implication has been uh, agencies of any stripe, EPA, Department of Energy, whatever it may be, they look at the statute that Congress adopts and they try to determine where the guardrails are and then they adopt regulations to implement those statutes. So from 1984 forward, as the court has become increasingly conservative, you routinely had people like Justice Thomas and when Justice Scalia was still alive, he, these uh, justices were very critical of agency power. They often thought agencies overstepped and it was common knowledge that at least Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia wanted to see the Chevron case overturned mm-hmm. because they thought it gave too much power to these agencies. There are a couple of other things. Obviously, Alyssa's mentioned the major questions doctrine, but there's also the non-delegation doctrine, which can impact the White House or an administrative agency's authority. But the non-delegation doctrine is a little, is much more narrow, I would say. It would deal with a situation um, such as, can the president of the United States delegate their pardon authority to another individual or to, Mm. you know, a group of individuals? That kind of issue would probably be dealt with with a non-delegation doctrine. So you've got Chevron, non-delegation, and the major questions doctrine. And the major questions doctrine is sort of new in terms of its application. And what are the implications, though? I think that is really what everyone is trying to understand. Precisely. I mean, what's what's the future of our federal agencies? What will they be able to do? Right. And of course, the major issue is so many regulations that the agencies struggle with are highly complex. They're very technical. They require a lot of expert assistance in terms of engineering, medicine. It just covers the gamut. So oftentimes lawyers are not good at making decisions that involve such technical issues. So that's one fundamental concern. Are the courts capable really of of handling these kinds of questions? For example, in my experience, When it comes to doing a financial evaluation of a rule's impact, the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the administration, the White House administration, once a rule reaches a certain stage on the federal level, the fundamental question that is asked, is it a major or a minor rule? A minor rule is defined as a rule that has less than $100 million of impact annually. And that may sound like a lot of money to to, to (laughs) most of us, but you would be surprised. The bulk of the rules or a lot of the rules that are adopted by federal agencies are major rules, Hmm. more than $100 million in impact annually. And so the point of that is the OMB actually does coordinate between all of the agencies in the federal government. If any single agency proposes a rule, do other agencies have comment? And they do a detailed financial analysis on that rule and its impact. And so there is a mechanism within the rulemaking process that addresses financial concerns. And I've actually been in meetings at OMB and talked to them about certain issues. And in fact, during the Obama administration, a rulemaking that had proceeded as a minor rule was incorrectly classified. OMB 
reclassified it, and it had to go down a completely different path. So this financial analysis is already done inside the agencies. Now, the courts may disagree with that, sure. how it's done, but, but it is already being, uh, being conducted on the agency level. Well, then, Alyssa, having heard Don's breakdown on that, I and he touched on this a little bit, but I'm interested in your thoughts as well. Forecast for me then, what do our federal agencies look like if the fallout from this particular case, or maybe a later one if they take the sidestep we talked about earlier, what will their role be? Is, is it significantly scaled back? Is this something that is going to force Congress to be more proactive, or do you see somewhere settling in the middle? I think it could be somewhere in the middle. I think it really would be up to Congress to either pass legislation that would meet this major questions doctrine rule where they are explicitly giving agencies these powers. Or if they choose not to do that, then, yeah, the onus is on Congress to come up with answers to these pressing technical questions and find a way to keep the legislation up to date. Something tells me I just can't see Congress completely abdicating that power. Um, but you're right. It's, a, it's an either or situation. If that's what's required by the courts, they're going to either have to tell them you got the power to do this or doggone it, we're going to have to find a way to come to a meeting of the minds on our own. So I am intensely interested in it. I knew um, just enough to be dangerous before reading uh, your article, but I'm even much more interested now having heard from both of you. And I know that this means a great deal to our clients as they try to keep up with all the rules that get generated by sometimes very activist agencies, and sometimes those are scaled back. So thanks for keeping up with that. And I hope that our listeners uh, in the business community will continue to check in as you guys monitor the situation. I'm sure that when the final ruling comes out, we'll, we'll see some additional information coming from you guys. So thank you on that. And who knows, might might bring you back for a further podcast, which for uh, Don will be his third time. And I'm, I'm thinking I might have to start giving him like prizes or something to get him to come back to me. But uh, speaking of which, before we finish out, Alyssa, since this is your first time, I will spare Don a return to the Know That Crow segment. But let me turn to you. And I uh, had a little bit of time in our in our pre-show to kind of talk with you a little bit and learn that a little interesting tidbit about you is that you're doing something pretty cool getting ready for your 30th birthday. Tell us what that is and what it entails. I am training to do an Ironman 70.3 out in Boulder, Colorado this summer. It is actually the day right before my 30th birthday. So I will either complete it and turn 30 or I will die. And either way, I'm going to have so much fun. I, I'm, I'm betting on you making it through and doing well. But for those of us who uh, don't know, you, you sort of casually say 70.3. Let's break down what that really means. It's three different components. Tell us what you'll be doing. It starts out with a 1.2 mile swim. Uh, then you have a 56 mile bike ride. And then you finish it off with a half marathon at 13.1 miles. Okay, that's... That's just ridiculous. I, I've only done even one component of that. And 10 years ago, I got it in my head to do a half marathon. And uh, I uh, wound up in the medical tent immediately <laughs> as I passed the, the finish line. And for you, that's just going to be a third of your day. So that's amazing. Uh, that's very, very cool. Boulder is going to be a beautiful place to do that in, too. Oh, yeah. Either way. I mean, I'm either going to enjoy the scenery standing up running or flat <laughs> on my back on a gurney. So. Well, I'm going to I'm going to bet on the former. But I, uh, where, where, do you, where does the swim take place? Is that 
Are we talking like a, a big lake or are you in an indoor pool? It is in the Boulder Dam Reservoir. So it's outside, but it's, it's real deal. man-made, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still. Uh, very, very impressive. We'll be uh, rooting you on and, and hope for a, a, an update on your successful finish when it's uh, all said and done. Well, that's a wrap for today. I really appreciate you, Don and Alyssa, for coming into the studio today and talking about a complex issue, but one that's going to have implications for folks in the environmental sphere and really almost any industry for potentially for generations to come. I, I want to make sure that uh, all our loyal listeners remember that, uh, you know, if you've got uh, some topics out there that you'd like to hear from us about, please do send your ideas to legal at crowdunlevy.com. You might just hear that topic on a future episode. So until the next time that we are all gathered together here on the show, stay healthy, friends. We look forward to the next time with you here on Briefly Legal. <laughs>